The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but boy, are we going to make it worth your while tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing quite all right. You're Thank excited you. about this one? I'm super excited. I'm super psyched about this one. Tonight, we have the really the, the great pleasure. I know it's our great pleasure to have uh, Mr. Todd Newman on the show. He's a writer and an actor known for uh, Spread TV. Obviously, this uh, documentary Morning Sun. He has also worked on uh, Married with Children. And of course, as a lot of us know him, he is the co-host of Dark Matter with Dave Navarro, which I've had the pleasure of working on. And let me tell you, between you know the, the stress of making sure everything is going right and the laughs, because it literally makes me crack up every time. It's really some of the best times I've had in Todd is definitely an integral part of that show, and uh, I'm really excited to have him here tonight to discuss this latest project, which is a, a, a mind-blowing documentary, really, I, and I'm not trying to exaggerate, and that's the documentary Morning Sun, and uh, we got a chance to to watch it back in December in a screening, and that was the first time I've seen it, and it was in, in a beautiful theater, and seeing it in the big screen, I mean, the impact, uh, you could hear a pin drop in that theater. We were all glued to our chairs. Honestly, it's a harrowing and dark story, but with a very hopeful message at the end. So without further ado, let me just bring our guest tonight, Mr. Todd Newman, on air. How are you doing tonight, Todd? Thank you for taking the time, because uh, I know it's it's a bit late, but you were gracious enough to be with us tonight. No, I am. Uh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Let me start off with this, because this is your directorial debut, and what a way to kick off your uh, directorial uh, career, if you will. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts so far? The documentary has been out a few months. Uh, so far, the reception has been great. Did you ever expect to get so much uh, positive feedback? No, I mean, uh, the feedback has been amazing. Uh, People have nothing but kind words to say. You know, with a subject matter like this, if you have bad comments, it's kind of like, just keep them to yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But comments, I mean, they have been great, and it's been helping people, um, which wasn't our intention when we set out to make this film. That was a byproduct that we realized kind of halfway through, like, wow, this story might be able to actually help people. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's doing that. People are really connecting, and you don't need to necessarily be the victim of this type of tragedy mm-hmm. to relate to this film. Um, you know, it is, a, in essence, about loss and finding ways to make your way back through that and try and face fears and have a full life regardless. And a lot of people are connecting with that, and I'm, I'm obviously happy about that. And the style that we chose to shoot everything in and the way we decided to tell the story is getting well-received as well. You know, there's been a few people that are like, yeah, it's not my taste, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, to each his own. But the feedback has been overwhelmingly great, and uh, it's been garnering a lot of attention, which we didn't expect for this. You know, we just expected to make this little documentary and mm-hmm. let it live the way it's living. And um, 
we're happy with it. Yeah, for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, this project took about 10 years to complete, correct? Seven, actually. Seven years. Seven years. Seven Close years. to 10, right? Yeah. Rounding up. Close to 10. <laughs> From the inception of the first phone call mm-hmm. that Dave and I had, where we spoke specifically about making a film together in that sense. Yes, it's been about seven years. And how did that idea come about? Because I know, you know, Dave published a, a book, I believe it was uh, uh, around uh, 2005, I want to say, called Don't Try This mm-hmm. at Home. Was there ever an idea to maybe tell this story in book form or was it an idea to make a documentary from the get-go? Yeah, no, the book thing was never uh, talked about between us anyway. It was always, we're going to, Make a film. You know, you know Dave and I very well, and we're both heavy cinephiles, and we love films. And Dave and I have been working in a bunch of different mediums together for a long time now. I've shot video for his band. Um, we've done Spread TV. We did Dark Matter. We've done a bunch of little things. We shot a lot of little shorts, mostly on the comedic side. But uh, it was always our intention for a long time to make a film, a feature-length film or at least see if we could. So when we started talking about this, there was there was never any other inclination of anything else other than we're going to make our first film. What should we do? Where do we start? You know, and we decided to do it in the documentary world. That the, the way the progression went was let's make a film. Okay. Let's make a documentary. Okay. Dave said, I have a great story. And I said, I'm glad you said that. I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's right. kind of how it started, you know? And and granted, much of the time, especially in the first couple of years even of, of filming, we weren't sure that this was ever going to be finished or that it was ever going to go public, you know? Wow. Like uh, a lot of it, you know, the first footage that we shot, if, if you've seen the film already and if you haven't, I'm sure this isn't ruining it, but... When Dave is driving and I'm filming him from the side, that's the first stuff that we shot. And I basically said, let's get in the car. We had borrowed a camera. And we didn't even have our own equipment at that point. I amassed that as someone went on. But we had a borrowed camera. And <clears throat> I said, let's get in the car and let's take a drive. And let's just see if you can even tell me the story from A to B to C. You know, let's, let's right. start there. And that wasn't footage that we ever even intended to make the final cut. But it was so raw and so honest and so revealing, you know, we decided, obviously, we should use it. But um, a lot of it was, let's just keep going and seeing if we can keep doing it. Let's see where it takes us. So there was definitely, uh, there was no time limit. You know, the good thing is, is that Dave and I pretty much made this film ourselves with the help of a few friends, you know, carrying some equipment here and there. And finally hiring an editor to sit in my, we basically cut the film in my back house, the entire film. So we had an editor come in, that's a friend of mine, and he kind of like, we just all edited together. But aside from that, it was Dave and I that made this film. We financed everything ourselves. We, there was no timetable. We didn't have an agent. There was no studios. There was no distribution company. It was just Dave and I making a film, which for this particular story, I don't think could have went any other way because if we didn't have complete control and complete control of not just the content, but control of when we were going to do what, where, you know, and how had to be up to us because it was a very obviously delicate situation that we're talking about here, you know? Right. 
Obviously, uh, if people didn't know before, they I'm sure they know by now that you and Dave are best friends. Mm-hmm. While working on this project, did you find out anything that you didn't know previously? You mean personally about him or about the case? About the uh, the case, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean there was uh, there was tons of stuff that I found out before Dave ever knew. There's stuff, oh, there's wow. stuff that Dave didn't know. You know, so you know one of the things I did early on basically to find people because people had been scattered. There were friends and family and um, police and LAPD and lawyers and all kinds of people to track down that, you know, you're talking about we started, you know, 23 years later, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So people had retired, people had moved, some people had passed away that investigated the case. So what I did was I hired a private investigator to track some people down for me. In that process, the private investigator found information that I didn't know, or he would put me in touch with, you know, an LAPD officer or the lawyer who prosecuted the case, and I would talk to them, and I would find disclosed information that Dave wasn't privy to simply because he was being protected by it because he was 15 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, and then as far as stuff that happened in the courtroom, you know, there were certain parts because Dave was a witness in the trial. There were certain parts of the testimony he wasn't allowed to be involved in or hear. you know, he wasn't allowed Mm -hmm. to sit inside the courtroom. So that was very tricky because there were some things that, you know, that were, I don't want to say the word trivial is a little too light, but some things that I knew that wouldn't, have a huge affectation on them. But then there was other stuff that I found out that, like, I had to tell them about. And, like, you know, it was stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, there was stuff like that that I did learn um, and that both of us learned. And then there were other things that he confided in me. Like, you know, again, I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. I'm sure that the four people listening to your show might have seen it already. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I had to give you a little um, <laughs> No worries. But when Dave tells me in the car the story of him being handcuffed, I did not know that about him. I knew there was a lot of that went on, but I didn't know the particulars of that story. And that was the first time that we were shooting footage. You know, there's also, bring back the other conversation we were just having, uh, uh, the conversation a few minutes ago, there was a lot of things because we were so naive and stupid in the beginning of making this film mm-hmm. that served us because the first thing that we did was get in the car and drive to the apartment where the murders had happened. And Dave, although that's in Los Angeles and although Dave is driven by that street many times, he's never just driven down it. Oh wow. And like, in a way, who the f- does something like that? You know, like, right. tell me your entire story about this whole thing. The murders from the beginning, you know, from before it and all the way up to the end. And let's go to this location on our first drive out. So us being naive about it definitely uh, helped in a weird way. And it also hurt. You know, we had to go through a lot of uh, recovery work because of it. I imagine. I just wanted to briefly ask the other interpretation of the question. Is there anything you learned about Dave personally that you didn't know before and that you didn't expect to find out? I mean, just like little particulars, you know, little um, family stories and family interactions that unless you're talking about a specific thing, you kind of don't learn from a person unless there's a a reason to bring those up. Like, I got to know his family much better. I got to know the schematics of his family much better. Um, 
you know, little things like that, but there was no like, wow, I didn't know that about you type, you know, mm-hmm. um, moments for me. It was mostly family or incidents involved with the case mm-hmm. that I learned that I didn't know, you know. Um, I got to learn, you know, for myself too, I got to learn the strength that the guy has. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You start to see someone in a very different light too when you're going down this road and you're trying to create art from it as well. You know, which is a very, a very hard line that I had to ride as trying to be a professional and be, and direct the piece itself, yet still be his friend at the same time, you know, and, mm-hmm. and a confidant and know that he's trusting me with all this information. So, you know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, riding the fence on my friend right now or on my director. And there were times we did clash and we did fight about, I think this needs to be in here. I think this point needs to be made or I think it should look this way. And there were times where he was adamantly, no, we're not doing that. And then to his credit, there were many times where he was like, I don't agree. Tell me why you want to do that. And I would. And he'd say, okay, now I agree. Let's do it that way. So, it was a rough road on, on that sense, but it was definitely uh, strengthening on many levels, you know? Yeah. As a director, was there any footage that you wish had made the cut? And if so, can we expect a, a director's cut version in the future? Well, let's put it this way. At one point, I had like a seven-hour movie in the timeline. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and we whittled it down to an hour and 45 minutes or 47 minutes, whatever it is. But there's, you know, I have tons and tons and tons of footage. Is there any that I wish made it that didn't? No, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could easily sit here and say like, well, you know, you get to a point for me, I don't know what other people's processes are, but for me, it got to a point where I had it down to like three hours. And then ironically, what we started calling it was killing our babies, you know, like there were certain things that I wish would be in the film, but you have to put them to bed. You know what I mean? You have to kill them because it's just, it's too long or it's too much, or we haven't established that road enough, or is it really supporting the through line of the story that we're trying to stay on course of? But there's nothing really that I wish was in it that we cut at any point. And as far as him not allowing stuff, like, I don't want to stat in, I don't It wasn't like that. It was never like, I don't want that in because it's too revealing on his end. It was more of, I don't want that in because I just feel like it's not necessary. We have too much stuff like that already. Or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of footage that could create a pretty fascinating uh, director's cut or DVD extras type of thing. Uh Like, there was a lot of, you know, there's a section in the film that we called when we were working on it the humor section. And I thought it was important, and Dave thought it was important, because of the type of people we are, and you know how we are. We (laughs) cross the line many times on Dark Matter. (laughs) Even when we were off air, you have a personal glimpse of the type of people that Dave and I are, you know, with a sense (laughs) of humor anyway. And we cross the line, and we go very blue, and we thought it was important to put some of that in just to show what type of person that Dave was, and that it also forged our relationship. Like, he doesn't have uh, quote unquote up sense of humor because of what happened because mm-hmm. that didn't happen to me and I have that same sense of humor which is one of the things that bonded us as friends in the beginning of our friendship <laughs> you know what I mean right but it did play a part it did help him get through things it helped when I'm in traumatic situations or crisis I go to joking about it and we wanted to show that that is a mechanism 
and that it is something that's strong in Dave's life. So we called that the humor section. Well, I could have made an hour and a half movie of the humor section, let's put it that way. <laughs> wow. Like, of shit that didn't make the movie. That is like, no, 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 we can't, we can't put that in there. You know what I mean? Right, right. But I'll leave that to your imagination, knowing Dave and I personally, of some of the comic relief that he and I had to go through with each other just to get shit done right. on this project, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because as a kid, I, I grew up grew looking up, up to, kid. yeah, I grew up as a kid. Although <laughs> <laughs> some people will debate otherwise, but, um, one of the things is I was a, a fan of, of Dave and his music at an early age and I was aware of the story. You know, back then there was no internet. I mean, aside from a little snippet in a, in a written interview in a magazine or, or something, there was really not much known about it. And, and a lot of people didn't know that this, unfortunate, uh, you know, event happened to him. Like I said, I remember the, the first time, you know, after meeting Dave, that he made a joke about his mom's death and all of you guys laugh and I kind of froze, <laughs> you know, and didn't know how to react. But it's really a, a really cool thing that Dave and you can have a, a laugh and not at the expense of what happened, but it's almost like a part of just a healing from such a traumatic experience. Do you think that this documentary was that last step in Dave's healing or was this something that he had overcome already and that's why this documentary was able to be put into production? No, I don't think. I think the prior thing that you said, I don't think it's like the end process of his healing. I think, um, I mean, this is really a question for him, not me, but if you want my outsider looking in point of view, I think this was the beginning of a way greater phase of the healing and a deeper level of, of recovering, you know? Um, I think that this film, again, this is, I'm completely speaking out of turn because this is a question for him, but I just think that this was a, uh, a much, uh, deeper inward connective look at what happened for him, you know, I, I, um, I see that I saw it go from, you know, in the seven years from day one until now. And, you know, I think that even more towards the end when it was the fear of it being public, you know, okay, we finished this film. Now let's put it out. I think that that was even a tougher hurdle in many ways for both of us than the actual making of the film. Because even at that point, since we had total control, you know, there were times that I said to him, weeks before it released digitally, well, if you want me to put the kibosh on it, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? That was always an option up to the very end. So I think the reality of once it's out there, it's out there, was a a tough hurdle, but a very healing one, you know? But um, I don't think that this is the end. You know, Dave, again, this is something that I'm speaking out of turn because it's his terminology, Mm -hmm. but there's no such thing as closure, you know? It's never going to not suck that this happened, Mm -hmm. but I think that his relationship to it has changed tremendously because I think, as it states in the film, he's got a different relationship with his mother. You know, one of the things that he said to me over the course of making this, especially towards the end after, you know, the the San Quentin visit was um, when something like that happens, if you start thinking about the good memories, the bad ones are immediately in its wake. You know, they're trailing right right Right. behind. So you kind of, 
I think the terminology he used was something very poetic, like they become like casualties almost, the good feelings, because you have to stuff them away with the bad too. You can't have it both ways. You can't just think of the good things. So instead of thinking good and then having bad feelings come up, you stuff it all away. It all goes in the closet kind of thing. And I think that he was able to, through the process of making this film, have a cathartic experience enough where he can think of the good memories. And we do allude to that towards the end of the film, you know. Mm -hmm. And he had memories flood to him of his mom that had been locked away for years, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like I said earlier, it's a different level of healing. Not that it's the beginning or the end, it's just a much different level. Um, so we've had a couple of comments in the, um, in the chat room. One good, um, but slightly awkward question from Mr. T.M. Merlo is, Todd, did you feel that you could relate a little more after your father had passed? It's funny. Mm -hmm. See, I knew there was a reason why I blocked him the other couple weeks back on uh, Twitter. I unblocked him last night, and now I see what he's doing. <laughs> Jane, Jane Doe no, asked it. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Um, I think uh, it's funny, because when my father did die, I was in the middle of doing this, making this film. So, you know, my father wasn't murdered. It wasn't tragic in that sense. Um, so I think I posed that question to myself when my father died it is can I relate to this more mm -hmm. and the short answer is not so short the short answer is, is I don't know like I don't think so how can you relate to that at right. 15 you know what I mean like yeah. it's just my father died simply because he smoked 18,000 cigarettes a day he ate like shit. he had a heart attack you know what I mean like, right. so mm -hmm. you know what I mean it wasn't uh, it, it's completely different I certainly can relate to the loss part of it yeah. you know what I mean like that gut feeling but put it this way you know I can't relate to the confusion and the unanswered questions and how am I going to live the rest of my life? I mean, I'm married. I have children. I've been with my wife for 19 years. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do I relate to a 15-year-old that had that happen? You right. know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, That's a good anything, answer. the underlying or umbrella statement of shit happens, like, I can relate to that part. Like, well, this happened, and I'll deal with it and live through it. But I don't think so. I don't think that it had any... Um, that I felt any closer to the film or felt any more understanding for it than the day before he died, to mm -hmm. be honest. Talking about footage, we were discussing that a, a few minutes ago. The documentary is definitely rich in video footage of uh, Constance and some of the, the work she did, as well as photographs. Was this all stuff that Dave had or did you guys have to go looking for all of these things? Um, much of that stuff came from Dave's father. Okay. Dave's father had a bunch of boxes with pictures, and he had uh, the commercial reel that you see of her in commercials and stuff like yeah. that. He had it, I think it was on 16 millimeter, and I had it transferred and um, restored because it was all purple. The footage had oh, wow. deteriorated somewhat, mm -hmm. and I had it restored, and it came out beautiful. And that it was lucky that she had that occupation and had that real and that he had that stuff. But most of that stuff, pictures of her 
and headshots and pictures and stuff like that and it mostly came from Dave's dad. Dave had seen some of it, but not all of it. Like, when we got it, it was this treasure trove of, like, wow, I never saw this picture before. Wow, I never saw that picture before. And, I mean, a wealth of huge boxes of stuff that didn't even make the film. So much wonderful, amazing footage of her that, again, that's another thing. I could have made a three-hour movie just about her and the reels and the pictures and, a you know, a montage mm-hmm. of just amazingly beautiful shots of her. Continuing on the topic of footage, there's a lot of footage in the documentary of Dave that, I mean, some of it's very raw and very dark, and uh, at the same time, uh-huh. some is very artsy. Was this all footage that Dave shot himself? Did he have any plans for that footage, or was this all stuff that he was just kind of doing for fun, if I may use the term? Which footage are you talking about um, specifically? Well, the, the ones that made me the, <laughs> the, the ones that made me squirm of it, I have a phobia of needles so obviously some of that footage as well as you know there's footage of him you know black and white footage tied to a chair and mm-hmm. and, and you know it's very in the artsy kind of stuff uh, right, and right. very okay. dark so, and by squirm you mean it made you hard yeah exactly right. extremely yes <laughs> yeah. um, the black and white footage is an art film okay. that Dave made I believe and I, I might be misquoting here but I believe he was playing with the chili peppers at that point in his life. And um, he had made an art film with a, a guy who shot the footage, and, mm-hmm. and um, it was just another way of expressing himself. And I had, was given the footage by the girl who's in the footage, which is Dave's ex-wife. It was his wife at the time, and mm-hmm. they made this little art piece. And I, as the director, I thought, how telling that is, that his wife is in it, she's blonde, he's tied up, They're, you know, doing things to themselves that are dark and heavy and the overtones of, like, I could see why the son of a murdered parent, a murdered mother, a murdered beautiful mother would create something like this. I thought it was very telling. And I don't know if he knew that at the time. I don't think that was a forced message at the time. But that's why I decided to let it play in its entirety, too, um, instead of just showing a quick snippet of it. Because... I was fascinated by the fact that he made something like that with him tied up. There's so much psychological stuff going on, so much psychological layers coming from the mind of an artist who had that kind of tragedy in his life. So that's where that footage came from. It's an actual art film. It's not something that we did or some old footage that he just had laying around. You know what I mean? Right. It was a a purposeful art film. I was going to ask him who decided to even bring that footage onto the documentary. Who who thought that that would be relevant? Well, I know that I knew that that thing had existed, because I think he had like a an old quick time of it or something. And then we contacted uh, Rianne, his ex-wife, and she brought me over a DVD of it because, you know, even in the, in the worst-case scenario, okay, even if we take a snippet of it for montage type stuff, for me, as a director, I just tried to amass everything I could find, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have every magazine he was in. I have every, you know, footage, TV shows, YouTube clips. Like, I have, I went down the gamut of I want to see everything And then I'll decide what I want to use and what I don't. That was never one of the things that Dave said, oh, I don't want that in there. He wanted it too, but it was both of our decision. We never really fought about it. I think both of us were on the fence of, 
do we cut it down and make reference to it or do we let it play in its entirety? And artistically, we wanted to let it play in its entirety, you know? Right. Um, it's incidentally the only song that Dave uses of Dave in the, that Dave played, that Dave wrote or Dave plays on in mm-hmm. the entire film. Wow. And the reason why is, is because that song was married to that footage. So, you know, I mean, I easily could have just cut the sound and put something else there, but I wanted it to live as it was created back then. So I made the decision to keep the, the song and the film intact as it was. Speaking of music, I, I know that the music was owned by uh, Michael Tuller, whose credits include yeah. Nine Inch Nails, The Pesh Mode, obviously Jane's Addiction, um, among other great artists. Was there ever a question about Dave, you know, scoring and composing music for this project? Or Yeah, that was one of the things we did fight on. Well, we didn't fight, but, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to include other tracks of his, even just instrumental stuff that I thought were so poignant and awesome, and he specifically did not want to make that about... There was a No Janes music allowed right off the bat, which <laughs> I understood why, of right course. off the bat, so I never fought him about that. And as far as solo stuff of his, you know, he just didn't want to make it like, here's the thing, and here's me, and here's some of my music, and I'm rocking out while my mother telling my mother's dying. So he just didn't want to go down that road, and I completely Correct. understand that. So uh, it wasn't a fight about it, but there were things that I would have liked to use that didn't make the cut, and I get why. You know, I completely understand why. Incidentally, Michael Tuller was amazing. He's just an amazing person, and uh, he just hit the nail on the head. Like, he would give me a bunch of tracks, and I would say, something like this, or can you make it like that? He's just such a pro. That guy was a godsend to uh, help us out with music. Definitely a, a great addition uh, to the project. I've seen a lot of tweets and comments uh, in regards to the music in the film, and it's been really positive. It was really great. Any plans that that will be put out uh, as a CD or something for fans that want to... I don't know. I mean, there might be. I can't say yes, I can't say no. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, we're working on farm distribution right now. There's, do we do DVD extras? Do we put out a soundtrack? You know, again, because it was just us in the beginning. You right. know what I mean? Um now those are all avenues that usually are set up ahead of time that we're kind of just going down that road now. So um, I'm not sure is the answer to that one. There could be, there there might not be. But, uh, you know, incidentally, a little, I don't think that this was ever made public yet. And I don't, I guess they won't care. Because um, <laughs> I don't think anybody's asked us in any interview. I don't think that any, I've ever even said it outside of it between Dave, Dave and I. At the end of the film, you see over the credits, it was a very simple credit. Um, I didn't want to do anything kind of flashy or anything because, like, I wanted to leave you with the last image of the film more than anything. And um, if you listen, there's, like, birds chirping and a dog barking and stuff like that over the end credits. And I, I have had one or two people ask me, like, what was that about? And I'm like, gosh, you know, outdoor tone noise, you know? Right. That sound is, this, I put a, a Zoom microphone on Dave's mom's headstone. Oh, and wow. So the sounds that you hear at the end of the movie are what plays wow. in that environment. Um, well, we've had more questions from the chat. One of them is from Fondly Jules, and it says, you know, what can we expect from Todd and Dave collaborations in the future? We have a lot of things <laughs> collaborating. Some of them I can't talk about yet. Not that I can. I don't want to make it like a secretive, you know, big things in store. It's just we're not ready to talk about them because they're just still in developmental stages. But we have some scripted stuff that we're working on. We have some uh, 
you know, I have a wealth of scripts that I've written, so we're looking to launch a production company where under that umbrella, we want to make our own scripted films. We want to make our own, um, we have television stuff in the works, and uh, we also want to build it up to a point where other filmmakers can come under our roof and make films as well. That's, that's the goal, you know. But that's not really a public thing yet. But yeah, we're we're already on to the next thing. Like I got there's a bunch of business stuff they'll still deal with with this film as far as I think we're trying to set up some New York screenings right now. I can't promise, so don't hold me to that, but we're trying to get those done. We're working on a foreign distribution deal. I get a lot of tweets and stuff about when when can we see it in England, when can we see it here or there and uh we're working on that. So there's a few loose ends to saw up on this film, but we're already working on other scripted stuff that I've been working on since the end of this film. Very cool. Let's talk about, I'll use the word gentleman to have some decorum here, but let's talk about this gentleman, John Riccardi, um, who obviously, mm-hmm. you know, is at, at the center of all this. He's the uh, cause of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a question about seeking him out granted he's easy to find now after he was on the run for quite a while was that mm-hmm. always part of the initial plan was trying to you know get in touch with the uh, proper authorities and have a sit down no that wasn't from the get our intention that's mm-hmm. something that came a little down the ways and we decided that for the film's sake it would be cool but yeah. You know, you don't want to rip off that traumatic band-aid unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And as you see in the film, which is a very true reaction, like, uh, we do not recommend, or and I can speak for Dave here, he does not recommend that you do that without, like, there's proper organizations that set things like that up. There's victims' rights groups that will help you do that kind of thing to have a face-to-face or um, a closure meeting, mm-hmm. as they call it, or whatever. But, like, we just kind of went up there and did it raw and don't recommend that necessarily but yeah it was it wasn't our intention when we said okay let's make a film let's make this film let's see the guy like it wasn't like that at all this came sometime later did it come sometime later in the back of my head kind of knowing that we got to ask that question if that's a road that we can go down maybe maybe i was denying myself that that was an inevitability in the way that this film laid out but um you know even that even that because we had complete control, you know, it was like, let's drive up there. And if at the last second you don't want to do this, we'll make that work. Or we won't even show that we drove up. You know what I mean? Right. Like we had control of it. So it wasn't like there's a timeline and we have a crew that's depending upon us. And then, you know, like we basically got in a car and, you know, the guy who was editing for us, David Frame and his partner, they used a couple of cameras and, we just went. There was no car mount. There was no, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the only reason why, is people, I've had a comment or two, like, oh, you went in a limo, though. Like, the only reason why we took a limousine is so Dave and I could sit next to each other in a two-shot, and the guys could sit across from us with cameras. Right. You know what I mean? And we right. could put all the bags in the middle of us. So, yeah, that was, uh, that wasn't our intention to do that from the get-go. It kind of became an inevitability of, like, the through line of this. I wanted to have it where, like, once I knew we were going to try and do it, and I went through a lot of red tape. The prison had, like, four or five different wardens that we had gotten to. 
you know, and then the paperwork would change. The red tape criteria would change, and then, and then we just finally went up on an out. And it worked out the way you see it in the film. Pretty, It's pretty raw of how that went down. But um, I wanted to have the through line once I knew that we were going to do it. I was like, it would be nice for us to be just going somewhere and you don't really know where the fuck we're going until we get there. That was my intention. Because we never really say that's where what we're doing in that car until we are about to turn that corner. In that case, what was your anticipated climax to this documentary? I mean, was it all along um, a journey towards um, closure for this trauma? Or did you maybe not even have an end goal in sight? No, we, it, was, it certainly wasn't closure because Dave was very well aware from beforehand. You know, it's mm-hmm. not my closure to talk about, it's his. So, but he was very well aware of the buzzword closure and how that's not really a true thing that, that happens. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, it doesn't close, you just have a different relationship to it after time and healing and recovery and therapy, what have you. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if I can tell you if there was an organic climax that just happened in the filming process, but we certainly didn't have one set out like, let's do it until we get to this point, and then that's the pinnacle, and hopefully we'll film it and put it in the film. There was never anything like that. If anything, the climax was, holy shit, we're going to release this now. It's done, and we have to, you know, (laughs) we have to stop it. Here it is. It's done as well as, as much as it's going to be. Like, I could have edited for another four years on it, if you ask me. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I still see little things that, oh, man, I wish I would have cut out of that a second quicker or whatever, which I'm sure every filmmaker does with their films. But I think that the actual, okay, it's about to go out and other people that aren't just friends or family are going to view it. That was the climax for me, you know, and I think Dave as well. Right, right. To go back to uh, John Riccardi real quick, one of the things that really, I mean, I couldn't wrap my head around. Well, you're really hopped up on this <laughs> Riccardi. <laughs> no, it's because for people that haven't seen the documentary or that have seen it, one of the, the things that I find scary is that this this uh, gentleman was literally, gentleman. you know, well, that is totally again, the wrong I'm, I'm word trying to, to keep some yeah, kind of, uh, no, that's still <laughs> should wrong. I just call him a, a, a dick? At least. No, well, that's what I was going to say that for me, one of the, uh, that's the, like a whole scripted dramatic <laughs> where it's like Hannibal Lecter. He's he did use silverware to eat, you know, those uh, that brain and all. So, you know, maybe we can call him a gentleman to something. No, but one of the, the terrifying things for me was just seeing the lack of remorse in this guy. I mean, it, I've honestly yeah. never, and I hope I never run into somebody like that in my life because it mm-hmm. it, it was terrifying. It really was that there's, mm-hmm. there could be people like that out there. And, and, you know, you wouldn't know until they do something horrible prior to the documentary. Did you know about this guy, Riccardi, and that this was the type of person that he was? I mean, sometimes we expect people to have done horrible things that over time they'll be like, hey, you know what? I did, you know, mess up and, you know, I regret what I did, et cetera, et cetera. But there doesn't seem to right. be any on that in this guy. No, no. There was none of that. Um, you know, I never met the person, this guy, uh, in person. 
Um, I, so everything that I learned was from police reports, policemen, FBI profilers, and friends and family and dates of information they told me about. So basically, I'm kind of expelling what I learned through the, the film. You know yeah. what I mean? It was purposeful not to show his whole background and everything because yeah. it wasn't about him. Of you know, course. The film wasn't about him. It was about Dave's mom and the relationship with Dave and his mom and, and how he's getting through that. But it was necessary to show what happened and, and talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I learned everything informationally from, from people and, and documents and stuff like that. But everybody seemed to be on the same page. You know, right, about right. It. it wasn't, uh, you know, even people who were coming from a technical aspect and weren't emotionally involved in the case necessarily uh, all seemed to arrive at the same opinion about this guy. And from what David told me about their conversation, nothing had changed. And, you know, Dave even talks about it in the film before he's going in, that there was no fascination with this guy's psychology. Like, there is so much of that in today's culture and television. And yeah. 48-hour mystery shows and, like, you watch something on Manson and the whole family and blah, blah, blah. There was none of that kind of thing. And he knew going in that I'm not going to get any kind of answer or any kind of closure or have this guy apologize. Like, that's not what this is about. And it was about Dave walking in and facing a fear, literally putting a face to yeah. this event. Because he says it eloquently in the film. He can't go back and look the event in the eye. The only thing that he has to look in the eye and face some fear is this guy yeah. to put a face to it. And that's what that was about. But, yeah, it is scary that there's people like that. And there are tons of them. Right. You know what I mean? And he was a cunning, calm man. And, you know, again, if you think about it, he's an incredible pussy, you know, because mm-hmm. he couldn't take no for an answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the man is the guy who's like, oh, she doesn't want me. And she, he walks away and lives his life. Mm-hmm. This guy is a coward. And that's the people that you need to be fucking scared of. You know what I mean? Right. Because they're the ones who take that lashing out action. But, you know, I never sat in front of him. I never met him. I don't, mm-hmm. all I know is what everybody else knows. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, the reason why I wanted to bring that question up is because I don't want, you know, and I don't think this is the case, but maybe in case that there is someone out there that thinks, oh, well, maybe they were slanting the story in a certain way or they were purposely trying to paint him in a bad light. Like, he didn't need help in that department. Like, the guy. <laughs> no, yeah, there's not much painting that needed. There was no, you know, well, give me the uh, fan brush to paint this guy a little uh, creepier than he was. No, right. that was it. Like, you that was him. exactly what it was. Right, right. And, and again, purposely is why we didn't go into his whole background and everything. Mm-hmm. Try and just say, like, you know, this, this guy did it. It wasn't like a, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a, this man is this part of the story and that part of the story. This wasn't that thing. This asshole did it, and we showed you what led up to it. It happened. Here's him getting fucking what he deserved, and we're moving on now. And right. and Dave goes in, and then it, it comes. It reverts back to the story of Dave. So yeah, right. like, he didn't need any help being painted into that life. <laughs> right. I've had the pleasure and and the honor, and I don't I don't mean to get overly uh, dramatic here, but I've had the pleasure and the honor of knowing you and Dave for for a few years now, mm-hmm. and you know I've seen you guys' relationship, and I think we all want to have a, a friend like that in our lives. One of the things that I saw in the documentary that I can't recall ever seeing in person when it comes to you 
is you have quite a presence, uh, you know, and I think we all know that. And actually, some of us are scared of you a little bit sometimes <laughs> because you're quite imposing. But um, one of the things that really honestly shocked me a little bit was in the documentary, it was the first time I've ever seen you worried, uh, scared, yeah. if I could even use the, the term with your permission. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was, I was in fear for sure and worried. You know, uh, I think you're, I assume you're talking about when I'm standing outside St. Quentin. Correct. Can you tell me, I know you talked about it on the documentary, but that, again, as somebody that has known you for, for a while, and, and I know your sense of humor and your character and, and the type of person that, that you are, that was, I mean, that was a very uh, vulnerable moment uh, in which we see you. Can you just take us to that place and tell us what was going through your mind? Because this, to me, was really kind of like the apex of the story well you know um oh god I, it's uh it's it's to put it simply you know when we we had done a little bit of researching before we got up there in the sense that yes we just cold called when we went the day we went up but i had been trying to get it done proper ranks you know proper channels They have a public information officer there and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's not uncommon that people film inside of there. And there are certain rules for condemned inmates and there are other rules for people in general population. All that. I had assumed from some of the interactions that I had with people one and two years prior to even making that trip that I would be able to go with him all the way up to where he was going to meet with him. And I could just stand outside, and as soon as he came out of the door, I'd walk him back. Now, that sounds a little bit of trivial, but it was important to me. And I think, again, this is a question for him to answer. I think it was a little important to him that I just make that journey all the way up until go time, so to speak. So then I learned that's not the case. You're staying here. And then we also were under the impression that it would be with phones behind glass. And then we learned that that's not the case, that with a condemned inmate, you sit in a room and they take off the hand, you know, all that kind of stuff that you see in the documentary. So there was that. So what's going through my head in that moment, those moments that you see where I'm truly freaking out, you know, and I say it and it's not freaking out, I'm freaking out. I couldn't yeah. stop saying that. I had to cut, I had to whittle that back a few times. Because <laughs> there have been a three hour documentary of you freaking out as well, I imagine. Yeah, yeah of me freaking out, exactly. So... I mean, what's going through my mind in there is the the worst imaginable thing. Like, what if this guy lunges across the stage or, you know, to finish the job or, you know, yeah. he doesn't care because he's already in there, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Or, you know, what if Dave's freaking out? What's he going through, uh, you know, or traumatically or psychologically, you know, this might be a, a terrible metaphor, but did I just put a gun in my best friend's hand. Wow. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To his head. Or did I just put a needle back in his arm by allowing this to even happen? And like I had any, you know, he's a grown man. He'll do what he wants to do. He wouldn't right. know if he didn't want to do it. You know what I mean? Those are like the tip of the iceberg of worried, fearful, traumatic thoughts that were going through yeah. my head at that time. And what's gonna, what's this gonna become? What's this gonna mean? What's the aftermath of this going to be, you know? Um, and then, you know, I guess aside 
that you might not have ever seen of me because I probably don't show it to a lot of people, but mm-hmm. like, I'm a terrible person for letting him even do this. You know what I mean? Like, I was going through all that, too, wow. like, in a selfish way. You know? Right, right. And uh, so, yeah, that was just, you know, it was literally a plethora of fucking shit coming into my brain of what what have we done, what have I done, what could go wrong, what could this mean, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's where the worry comes from. And again, you know, I said something on camera that I don't think ever made the final cut of the film is, is like, you know, I said it to the guy right outside who was filming me and I said, you know, he's not an actor that I'm directing. This is my friend. Like if the movie was out the window at that point. I was not thinking about, well, let's get a nice long shot of the thing. You know what I mean? Right, like right. the truth is, if you want to get into the filmmaking of it, the truth is, is that I went up there months before just uh, me and a friend of mine and we just drove and shot road footage and then when we got there we just shot exteriors around the prison for like an hour and then drove all the way back just so I wouldn't have to worry about that aspect of filmmaking when I eventually would go with Dave so I wasn't thinking about anything film wise Mm -hmm. at that moment no understandably so yeah I was a little annoyed that cameras were there, although I knew it was necessary to get him walking in and walking out, like, as far as establishing where we were and stuff, but yeah, there was, you know, it was, uh, it was one of the rougher things for me to cope with in the Mm -hmm. process of the filming. And just a little, uh, added question to that, obviously, I'm sure it felt like an eternity, but how long was the meeting in actuality? He came out about 45 minutes later, so I assume they were in there for, you know, 30, 35 minutes, that okay. kind of thing. Okay. You know, but yeah, it did seem like days right. out there. I imagine. But one of the things that I love about the documentary, I mean, every, everything about it was uh, exceptional. I, I, I want to use the word enjoy, but it was really uh, quite a, an emotional roller coaster, to say the least. But one of, one of the beautiful things about this documentary is the artwork. There's a, a beautiful uh, picture of uh, Constance uh, um, that you guys chose for the cover. Where where did you guys get the picture? What was that picture from? And who were the artists that went on to develop the uh, famous portrait that became the cover? Okay, so the, the original picture is a picture that Dave's father gave us. It was one of her modeling shops. And you see it. You see, I think, uh, there's quick cuts of the contact sheet of her in different poses in that same outfit on that same shoot. Uh-huh. That end on that one, that actually is is uh, penned off to be eight by ten with a ruler, like how they used to do it in the old days by whoever was picking that as a headshot. So it was one of her old headshots, and it was just such a beautiful, awesome, artistic looking picture, and it was straight on. I mean, there was other technical aspects about it that made it so fitting, but uh, I just think it's a beautiful picture. That became the um, idea to do the actual poster art was through Dave's inception of some artists that he's influenced by that um, use colors in that fashion Mm. and drips and stuff like that. So we had that made up for the poster, which I actually am a a, a fan of that art of it. I, I love it. And, um, the blood painting, basically, uh, Dave and I are friendly with these artists that are very big in the, the underground 
body modification artsy. And they do a bunch of live shows and they, they travel all over the world putting out this amazing art that they do in blood. And one night, four or five years into the filming, we were hanging out with them. They were in town. Um, and their names are uh, Sampa and Aneta von Cyborg. You can look them up online. Some of their stuff is insane and crazy and beautiful. But uh, we were talking with them, and Sampa had said to us, you know, they were asking us about the film and stuff like that, and um, Sampa had said to us, oh, Dave, you should let me do a painting of your mom in blood. And he's like, sounds great. And then I looked at Dave, and I was like, we should film that. And he's like, okay, let's do it. So we didn't know what was going to become or how it was going to look or anything, but within like two, three days, we were out in Palm Springs driving to the desert and we spent a day out there. And as you see in the film, how the blood is contracted and all that. And, and we decided, you know, it was a very fitting of who it came from and all that. And we took the whole day and filmed the whole day and painted this thing. And I wanted to layer the film with a bunch of different little through lines. And to me, artistically, you know, one of the things about the film that I wanted to convey is, is that this is a man not just a man trying to cope through different mediums and through different escapism routes to cope with this thing that happened to him, right? Right. And he's done it with music. He's written songs about it. He's done, we did tattoos. He has a tattoo about his mom, of his mom. He's got her name on his back. You know, all mm -hmm. these like kind of progressive things that get deeper and deeper and deeper artistically expressing this subject matter. Yeah. And I wanted to show that this is how an artist tries to connect, you know, and tries to experience something about his life. So the reason why I decided to kind of open the film with it, close the film with it, throw a little bit of it in the middle there, was to me the painting at the end is basically tells the story of the movie you just saw, just right. in an art piece, instead of using words and visuals and all that kind of stuff. Or not visuals, but words and, and telling the story outright. That's an artistic take of the movie you just saw. Is what I was trying to convey. You know, people are going to see art however they see it mm -hmm. and be affected by it the way that they're affected by it, by all means. But that was my intention as the director to make that, uh, that metaphor. And the fact that we knew those guys and they wanted to do it and they brought it up and that we decided to film it was just like, you know, it wasn't one of those things, again, that, like, we're going to set out to do this. Call up Sampa and Anetta, get them over here, and let's <laughs> do it. It was just an organic thing that was suggested, and we were lucky enough to get the opportunity to film the process of it and to use it in our film. There's other artwork, too. There's um, a painting. It's, a, it's an airbrush painting of Dave's mom of Constance holding Dave as an infant and Dave suspending over her head. And that was created by an artist friend of mine that I went to high school with. His name is uh, Seth, C-E-S. His real name is Rob Provenzano, and he's a uh, great friend. And he said, send me some pictures. And I happened to send him that picture of Dave's mom holding him as a baby, and I sent him some suspension shot. You know, I just sent him a bunch of stuff, and it just, within days, I got this wood crate at my house with this gigantic, you know, canvas with that on it. Wow. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing, you know? 
Yeah, no, I was just going to say that that last uh, sequence in the documentary, it's it, it's very, I mean, you could tell that there was a very organic feel to it. And honestly, one of the most uh, profound sequences I've ever, you know, had the uh, pleasure of, of watching in the documentary. While making this documentary, did you and Dave sit down and, and discuss some of your favorite documentaries or uh, did you take inspiration? Well, I mean, we've been doing that. We've been doing that all along, you know, mm-hmm. like, I know exactly what he loves, he knows what I love, we watch a lot of shit together, you know, so, mm-hmm. there was a few, let's check this out, or let's check that out, like, I can't even remember specific ones right now, but, yeah, certainly, I was looking for inspiration, and mm-hmm. shit to straight steal from, <laughs> you know what I mean, like, right. let's steal that fucking child, like, you know, I'm gonna be honest about it, but. It ended up we really didn't do much of that just because the story has a way of telling itself, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it wasn't necessary to try and do some of that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we're both lovers of documentaries and, and all types of films. And, you know, I think the inspiration more was, like, not stylistically necessarily. I mean, we talked about that a bunch in the beginning. And... You know, we should make it like this, or we should make it like that, or, you know, but that kind of papered off very quickly, and the inspiration became more of that people make this stuff, not how they made it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, let's just make it. That's the inspiring part is, you know, someone tells a story about someone in a documentary, and, like, they did it. They got it done. That was what our motivation and the inspiration we were getting from other filmmakers was like, let's just do it. These guys did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was just going to ask, since we're on, on the topic of, you know, inspiration and, and stuff that you guys watch, you know, I, I sent you a message earlier uh, telling you that we do this thing called, you know, the top five. And depending on the on the guest, we pick, you know, what, mm-hmm. you know, their top fives. X, Y, or C might be. In your uh, case, as a, as a director of this documentary, uh, what are your top five movies? Uh, like, top five that just make your list, no questions asked. All right, well, let's get into this for a second now. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All right, because go? I'm not, because I have a lot to say about your top five question that goes to me uh-huh. a mere, like, 35 minutes before I was about to get on with you. <laughs> well, it has, to be, it has to be off the top of the head. I actually, we actually no, gave you a head doesn't. start. <laughs> so I saying, know this. Here's the thing. <laughs> You've been asking me since December 1st to be interviewed, and like a couple of minutes before I'm about to go on, hey, if you're interested, we might do this top five thing. I'm like, you're going to give me a little fucking little more. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I sat there with it for a minute, and I was like, you know what? It's, it's like, it's too general of a question. Mm-hmm. I, cu- I could not begin to give you five movies yeah, Frank. that are in my top <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. Like you would have to go you'd have to narrow it down for me like time period, like from the fifties or the sixties or the seventies or genre or something like that. Okay. You, you can ask me this question on any different day or you can ask me now and mm-hmm. then you can ask me an hour from now and my answers will change. Because to me, mm-hmm. this is something that my wife never gets about me and she's always like how can you watch the same movie 40,000 times? And I'm like... That's what I, I asked liken, Frank. <laughs> I like... Yeah, I liken films the way I ingest them to music, to songs. Like, you don't listen right. to a song that you love just once mm-hmm. and then you never listen to it again. You get a different emotional response or you need to have a certain emotional response so you go to that song. 
You want to be nostalgic, you listen to a certain song. Mm -hmm. You hear a song and it moves you or makes you rock or whatever it is, and you listen to it over and over and over again, right? And you leave it for a while. And then you listen to it, oh, I'm back into this song again. Mm -hmm. To me, films are like that. You know, like, Mm -hmm. there are films that I have watched, you know, you're watching that again? It was just on last week. Yeah, I gotta watch it again. (laughs) One reason is because I usually see something that I never saw, even if it's the tiniest little blip of something, you know? And the other reason is, uh, is I just, you know, I, movies make me feel a certain way, you know? Like I can, Mm -hmm. sometimes it, it could be even movies that suck. You can ask me what my top five movies are and I could be like, Zach, with Scott Bayo and Willie Ames, one of my <laughs> top five favorite movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. And mean it that night. But like, I don't know, are you asking like classics? Let's go through some classics if you want, like 50 well, movies. I mean, you, you don't have to answer this, this version, but the way I would phrase it is, um, there's a popular radio show in the UK called Desert Island Discs. And I think the best way to modify are poison in our American <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, whatever. Let me know. let me mute her mic real quick. No. But no, <laughs> we like to do it, you know, the way like in the BBC. It's going to go dry okay, now. But um the point is, you know, I guess if you had to pick, you're going to be stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life. You're going to die there, right? If you had to, you're going to scramble five DVDs out of your bedroom and you're going to be left with them forever. What are those okay. five DVDs or All videos? Right, well, if, I'm gonna, it's gonna be, if it's going to be five DVDs, which would mean I would have to have a DVD player. Which <laughs> okay, okay. and you have a DVD so player. So I would bring an Apple box. <laughs> or something like an Xbox where I had Netflix and Hulu and all those things. So, and you have all of them on the desert the island. In, putting, <laughs> wait, wait, putting the question into different clothing, you're still asking me what my top five favorite movies are. So whether I'm stranded on an island or I'm sitting in the comfort of my room right now, mm-hmm. it really is the same exact question. I can give you a list of a bunch of movies that I watch over and over again mm-hmm. that have influenced me, if you would like that. Start at the 50s. Oh, 50s? Okay, let's do 50s. (laughs) All right, 50s movies. Uh, Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum. Uh An amazing movie that you'll see scenes that Spike Lee has stolen from. I don't want to say stolen, that he was very inspired from. Okay. Uh, Here's the thing, and I do this with music, too. Let me me preface my, my... choices a little bit, especially with rap music or hip-hop, whatever genre you want to call it, or even contemporary rock. I like to find out like where the, all the samples come from. Like If I hear a song that has some crazy jazz sample in it, mm-hmm. I will track down the Eddie Harris CD that that was on, you know what I mean, or nice. on iTunes or whatever, and I will get into that song. And when I was younger, when cassette tapes were the big rave, which... You know, I'm, I don't know if some of the listeners remember <laughs> cassette tapes, right. but uh, I used to make tapes or even as early as burn uh, CDs where uh, I would have like a song that had a hook in it and then I would have the original song that it came from. I would have Led Zeppelin songs and then Led Belly songs or Led nice. Zeppelin songs and Robert Johnson songs. Like I'm always very into that and I do that with films too. And in the, in the movie Night of the Hunter, 
there's a lot of modern day, as early as the 80s, up until now, references that I see filmmakers that were influenced by that film because there's stuff like Robert Mitchum plays this preacher and he has the words love and hate tattooed on his fingers, which is very, very risque uh, for a 50s film. <laughs> and Spike Lee in Do the Right Thing, right. he has the guy wearing the love and hate um, and he has a speech to camera. And, and uh, you know, that's an homage right directly to that film. True. Um, one of my favorite 50s films of all time is The Man with the Golden Arm. It stars Frank Sinatra, who's a junkie and a jazz drummer. Oh, and wow. it's shot like a play, but you can watch anything that Frank Sinatra's ever in. He's Frank Sinatra. This is the only film where he's really acting in it. And oh, it's wow. f***ing amazing. That's... Um, the Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, Somebody Up There Likes Me with Paul Newman. Watch Somebody Up There Likes Me and then watch Rocky. Really? And we'll see where Sylvester Stallone got the inspiration for Rocky. And he's even playing, Paul Newman's playing uh, Rocky Graziano in it, who is a true uh, boxer. So um, Somebody Up There Likes Me. Well, I mean, even just some of the classics on the waterfront, I love that kind of shit, you know? <laughs> um, God, what else from the 50s? Let's move on to the 60s. That's right, almost let's five, right? Yeah, those were really, actually, really cool picks. I, mean, I got to check out some of those. Yeah, you would, I'd behoove you to definitely check some of those out. They're amazing. Will do. The 60s, um, God, the 60s. Wow. Oh, have you ever seen the movie Playtime? Playtime, no. Playtime is a movie by this guy named Jacques Tati, and it's like, it's kind of hard to watch a little bit, but it's so far ahead of its time and there's so many little easter eggs in it you have to watch it like 500 times to really get the whole thing but it's incredible um in cold blood mm-hmm. with robert blake which is the what was that film with phil hoffman where he plays oh true capote capote yeah truman capote and that's the story of the guy that he's writing that he falls in love with is the murderer locked up in prison it's a true story wow. And he wrote the book to it, and the film uh, was in the 60s, the black and white film. The end shot of that movie, like, I dare you to find a more frightening, chilling shot of, like, human reality than the end of that movie in Cold Blood. Oh, uh, what else from the 60s? Oh, here's an... Uh, have you ever seen... I'm getting a little out there. Like, obviously, I love all the classics, which kind of why I don't want to go down that road, you know? Right. Everything Kubrick made. Well, oh, of course. Put that right there. Yeah. yeah. Everything Cassavetes made, you know, like Shadows, Faces, uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I love the realism of all those films. But um, Sam Fuller, all those, like, weird B-movie, but awesome. Sam Fuller made a movie called White Dog. Have you ever heard of that movie? White Dog? No, I haven't. It's about, like, a white dog that was trained to, like, hate black people. It's so socially conscious now, and it's cheap and cheesy. I think Christy McNichol is in it. I think. There's some young actress that was a, a child actress. Yeah, I think it is Christy McNichol, but um, Shock Corridor by example. Some of those films are just, they're, like, cheaply made, but they're so poignant, you know? But anyway, there's a movie called Gigo, uh, G-I-G-O-T, that. Jackie Gleason was in, that I believe was like a huge flop, and he thought his career was over when he did it. 
and he plays this deaf mute in it that's kind of like the bumbling, laughing stock of the whole town he lives in. And it's just, it's like the saddest movie I've ever seen in my life. And I, when I was a kid, the first time I saw it, it just, there are certain films that stay with you and f*** you up, and Jigo was one of them. And it's not even a terrible film. Like, it's not a, it's not meant to be. I just felt so bad for the character. Right. You know? Um, the Wild Bunch is another great movie. Ernest Borgnine. That's, I think that's Sam Peckinpah. I can't believe I can't remember who that directed that. The Hustler with Paul Newman, like the classic. Right. All those. That's more than five, right? Did yeah, I think so. The 70s? Uh, yeah, but I'm surprised I, I didn't hear. Uh, going or you want uh, me to shut the fuck no, up? well, I was just gonna say that like Rosemary's Baby didn't make your '60s list, but I'm sure you probably are a big fan oh, yeah, of no, Polanski I mean, and all that's that. The thing. That's, what I'm, Steve, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Like I, I'm, I'm spouting Cassavetti shit, and he's in. It, you know what I mean? Like I can't think of everything that I love. Yeah, right. Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, let's get to the 70s, and I'll tell you 2001. Of course. Odyssey. I'll tell you all the President's Men, Dog Day mm-hmm. The French Connection, Three Days of the Condor, like all those 70s, like even some of the, um, I don't even want to call these black exploitation movies, some of them, like The Education of Sonny Carson is an amazing, weird movie. Um, even films that kind of suck. Did you ever see the movie Capricorn One? Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my so favorites. Awesome, <laughs> isn't it? And it, it's a cheap, cheesy movie. James yeah. Brolin and and uh, OJ was in it, wasn't he? From Law and Order and OJ Simpson. Yeah, he had like two lines in that movie, but uh, they fake the Mars flight and they kill the astronauts on the way home. They like fake the deaths. And yeah, it just that movie is not an amazing film. It's just so incredible the ending and everything and like. I just love that movie. Yeah. Um, the Anderson Tapes is another great movie with Sean Connery. I think that's Christopher Walken's first movie ever. He's like a kid in it. Um, Peter Hunter, Taxi Driver, Mean Shout, mm-hmm. every Scorsese movie from 72 is on that list. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did, did you watch and did you like the Parallax View? Mm-mm. No? I didn't see it. Oh, you got to check it out. It's it's right up there with Capricorn One. It's another one of my favorites, the Parallax View. I mean, I know the movie. I know what it's about and stuff. I just honestly never saw it. Oh, yeah. Warren uh, Beatty back back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely uh, check Evan that out. Can wait. Evan Can Wait is another one of those movies that I'm so... There was a point in my life where you can mm-hmm. ask Dave about this. I was going to get a Jack Warden tattoo of him as the coach in Heaven Can Wait because the character that he plays affected me so badly when I was a kid because he's the only one in the film mm-hmm. that it doesn't work out for. Wow. Like he just loses his friend and that's it. Everybody else, I don't know if you're familiar with that film or not. No, I haven't had the like, pleasure to watch it. Oh, you've got to, there's a, you know, there's an original from... I don't remember if it's the 50s. I think it's the 50s is the original. And then that one. And then they did a remake with Chris Rock that just didn't work. Oh, really? But the Warren Beatty version of Heaven Can Wait is pretty fucking amazing. Um, Ordinary People, one of my favorite movies of all time. That 
me up still to this day. I have quotes from that movie tattooed on my arm, believe it or not. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I must say that your your tattoos are almost like an homage to, to all the things. I guess they have influenced you. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. you have a, like the flux capacitor. I know you got that, obviously. You know, if you want to talk 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the future and all that. Yeah, 80s is the ordinary people. Yeah, back to the future and stuff like that. Like, I, won't, I don't know if I'd call those my top five films. Mm-hmm. But I just remember when I saw that, what an experience it was as a kid in the theater. You know what I mean? Right. And when did that film come out? 85? 85, yeah. Yeah, I saw that in the theater, and it's just, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. And it's also just funny that I have it. It's kind of the inside <laughs> joke, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, all those John Hughes movies from the 80s right. are amazing, and that feel of 80s. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. That 80s feel, and... I love shitty films too, like Tim Burton making Ed Wood is one of my favorite movies. Oh, that's a great and, movie, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and that put me on the trajectory to buy up every single movie that Ed Wood ever made, the, the original film. <laughs> nice. And like, they're so terrible that they're art. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're awesome because they're so bad. They're so, so they're funny. So, so funny. Glenda, Glenda, and Plan 9 from Out of Space. Yeah, anything Kubrick has made is mm-hmm. on my you know, uh, more recent stuff. The Right Stuff is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, All the President's Men. More recent stuff. God. City of God, have you seen that? Oh, yeah, from Brazil. Yeah, that's a great, great yeah. movie. City of God. Yeah. Is traumatic like, movie. <laughs> it's traumatic, but the story is so rich. And yeah. It's yeah. just so... Streamline, even though they jump around a little bit, it's just so palpable and easy of a story to digest yeah. what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, yeah, that, that, yeah, powerful some movie. of the performance that those kids gave is. Oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, it's one of those movies that kind of blurs the line. It's like at times you feel like you're watching a documentary, not a movie. Yeah, yeah, no, that. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. Sure, for sure. There were other directors that I heard talking about, like, I don't know how that director holds those performances out of some of those kids. Yeah. But, uh, oh, have you, here's one, here's one that might be on my top five if I was stranded on an island. Okay. I won't give all the, you know, look, I can go down the Godfathers, the taxi drivers. Of course. List, and those are just obvious. To right. Me, you know, so I'm trying to, those are there. I, I'm not denying that those aren't. But Todd, there's still five so movies my, if you had to choose them. If you had to, Todd. <laughs> one that would definitely be on that list is a movie called Man Bites Dog. Oh, I love that movie. It's French or something, isn't it? Yeah, well, they're speaking French in it. I believe they're Belgian or Danish. When I saw it, it, it is the most innovative amazingly witty, clever, genius film that yeah. I've ever seen in my life. It truly is. It's amazing. Yeah, it's no, basically, I... it's like a documentary crew is following around a serial killer uh-huh. who thinks he's like this high-class, you know, well-mannered. It's just, it's so fucking amazing. The guy who plays the lead in that mm-hmm. is one of the best actors I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember watching that movie, and no, definitely, I highly recommend people check out uh, Man Bites Dog. That's that's a great one. Yeah, Man Bites Dog. If you if you 
take nothing from my ramblings about movies in the past 30 <laughs> minutes or whatever. Thing. Yeah. Take Man by Dog. Watch that film. It's genius. Nice. And then, like, even some, I don't know, there's a bunch of foreign films that I love, too. Seven Samurai, like the old oh, films, yeah. Wild Strawberries and Mark Bergman. Like, I love all that kind of stuff, too. Sometimes it's a little harder to sit down and watch um, with the head that I have now and the timer restrictions in my life, but I still love all that stuff. The Harder They Come with Jimmy Cliff, I think, is an amazing film. I, I guess you would call that a foreign film. I mean, they're in Jamaica, and it was made there. So I guess it's foreign. But that's an amazing story, too. It's just a guy who becomes an outlaw to be famous, basically. And the soundtrack to that is great, too. Well, I don't want to put you on the He's spot too up. bad because I, you have given, believe me, this is a lot of homework for, for some of us. There's a lot of movies in there that I, I'm really intrigued to check out because, uh, you know, we kind of have a similar taste, it seems like. So I think I would enjoy a lot of the movies that you mentioned. I don't want to keep you too much longer, Todd. So I think we only got a couple more questions. One of them okay, is... It's um, Dave, it's for the people that may not know, he's made an art in music, TV, you know, radio. He's published a book, and now with your help, this documentary. Where are you guys going uh, from here? What is what is there left to tackle? Are you guys going to continue on the filmmaking path, or are you guys going to explore other avenues of uh, expression, if you will? Well, we talked about going to um, work for NASA. Okay, that's what I did too. Um, so. <laughs> we're going to yeah, yeah. launch ourselves into space next. No. no <laughs> we are, look, this was, if there is a means to an end, it was to make this film, especially by ourselves and contain it to ourselves, to prove to ourselves that we could make films. That's what we want to do. That's mm -hmm. what I certainly want to do. Um, you know, Dave is a musician. I know he loves play music, he'll continue to do that, but um, we have our ducks in a row of stuff that, like I said, was saying earlier, we're looking to continue to crank out films, basically. Mostly scripted. I mean, if you ask me today, I would probably tell you I will never shoot a documentary again because of the work it entails. Like, people don't realize it's way easier in certain sense to have a script. This is the story you're shooting. This is the time that you have to shoot it. This is the money you have to shoot it with. This is when it needs to be ended, and this is when it's going to release. Documentaries are so open-ended, and the problem, not problem, but the process is, especially with a story like this, you interview one person, and they disclose some piece of information that you never heard before. Then you got to chase that thing down, see if that's where the story should go, or if that's pertinent to a story that you already have, or if that's more interesting than the story you already have. And then they say another thing, like, shit, I didn't know that either. Now i got to find this person and that person. Or you get some piece of information that takes you on a whole different trajectory, and you kind of just keep going and going and shooting and shooting and then coming back and editing. And, well, now we need to shoot this because we, we're going to use this, and we need something to set that up. And You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very different process than scripted feature films. But I have television stuff that I've written by myself stuff that I've written with other partners and stuff that I've written with Dave that yeah. we're trying to get uh, in the works right now and feature film stuff. So, you know, the visual arts is where we're at right now, put it that way. Gotcha. And uh, 
that's where we plan to continue down that path for a while. My last question, and perhaps this is a, a question better asked uh, to Dave, but I wanted to know, to, to the best of your knowledge, at the beginning of the documentary, it opens with uh, Dave sharing this uh, recurring dream he, he has of you know, finding his mom, and she's not very happy to see him. To the best of your knowledge, does Dave continue to have that dream? Okay, uh, a couple of things to say about that. One, the answer to your question is, is no, he has not had that dream since, uh, you know, knock on wood, dispelling it in the film. Uh, two, to answer a very far away earlier question, that was one of the things that Dave fought me on, and I won. <laughs> um, wow. He didn't want to put that in the film. He's like, it's a guy having a dream. What's the big deal? You know how you can get it. Yeah. So, yeah. And he just didn't think it was necessary or we don't really go into it. And I, I was, right when he told me in person, this isn't something that we conjured up for the film. This is a friend moment where he's like, I've been having this dream and it's a recurring dream and this is what it's about. And, you know, he told me in much greater detail that we whittled it down for the film, but I thought it was absolutely fascinating and so telling yeah. that you know an adult would have a dream about his mother being murdered and the crux of the dream is, is that she didn't really get murdered she just wanted to get away from him and that she was leaving him the abandonment that must creep up you know to have that be in your subconscious um especially when there was no abandonment involved like she was taken you know what i mean yeah. But what it does to the self and the self-image and the human condition, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating, and I wanted to open the film with that. We fought about that up until the bitter end, and he was like, all right, fine, asshole. <laughs> you know, so, right. so um, that was, I can't, I can't recall really anything else that we, like, argued about heavily more than, than uh, just that uh, of opening the film with that. And he still gives me shit about it. We really? were at a screening the other night, and it's like, ever since my mom was killed, I've been having a dream, he just shoots me a dirty look and start laughing, you know? <laughs> you and your bullshit dream thing. It was a genius way to open the, the documentary, I must say. It definitely grabs you and sits you down and catches your attention, because, yeah, it, it sounds like a very, very raw moment that you capture there, and, and uh, thank you for fighting to to put that on there because like i said i feel like it really set the tone for the journey that you guys were going to take us on todd we're, we're pretty much out, yeah, out I mean, of especially with the visual that it's over to put the beginning of the desert footage i mean there's very much of a feeling of like what the fuck am i about to watch like, right you guys are weird there's that that's why i wanted to look in the film with that and that because that opener makes sense the very last frame of the film mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Yeah, and to state the dream, and there's a moment, it's my favorite moment in the entire film. There's a cut of Dave looking at the painting in mm -hmm. the desert, and the subtle little smile creeps across his face. He didn't know I was filming him at that time, and that was a real organic thing. Wow. And to me, opening with that dream and opening in the desert and seeing some of the crazy stuff that's going to happen and then closing it. And it's that smile that kind of encapsulates and bookends the film for me. It's my favorite moment in the 
all the other crap and not that it's crap, but you know what I mean? All the other filler and all that other stuff. It's all well and good. And I love it all. But that moment, because that was a real moment that I saw him have that I think was the most telling of the project that we had embarked on in that one little quiver of a lip. Yeah. It was all right in that moment for me personally, just as his friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it was, it was a beautiful way to end the documentary. That's for sure. Todd, where can people watch this documentary? Can you tell the, the folks at home, uh, where they can log in? Where can they yeah. download, download it? I don't have the exact link. I, I can shoot it out to you later, but you can go to iTunes. The film is Morning Sun, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, S-O-N. It's on iTunes, Amazon Instant, Google Play. Um, I believe it's on Vimeo, the paid part of Vimeo, mm -hmm. where you can pay for it. It's on a bunch of VOD. I know that on demand channels, I think, DirecTV. But mostly, you know, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. Those are the, those are the top ones I always just tell people. <laughs> it's on a bunch of uh, platforms right now, so... So definitely that's somewhere where people can watch, that's for sure. Just Google that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anywhere, and it, you know, right now it's distributed in the U.S. and Canada. I have a lot of people from overseas and from South America that hit me up and say, you know, oh, I'm trying to watch it, I can't watch it. We're getting there. It'll be, it'll be there soon enough. Nice. And lastly, any social media links that, you know, the, the folks at home can follow to keep up with you, Dave, yeah, and the movie? If you go to Morning Sun on Facebook, uh, at Morning Sun Film on Twitter is uh, his Twitter name for uh, everything that we post about the film as far as upcoming screenings and feedback and stuff like that. Uh, Morning Sun has a Facebook page as well. Um, that's pretty much it. Very cool. That's pretty much it. Um, you can go to MorningSunFilm.com. Right now, just the trailer is up there, but that'll be chock full of more stuff as soon as we get some fucking time to stuff up there. So <laughs> right now, it just has the trailer on it. Nice. Well, Todd, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time. As you mentioned, you guys have been pretty busy promoting the film. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, definitely a, an honor and a treat for us that you, uh, managed to, uh, to hang with us for this almost two hours to, to discuss this, uh, documentary and, and some of the, the stuff that you guys had to go through. So I really appreciate you for being with us tonight. And, uh, I wish you guys continued success with this documentary. I'm thrilled to see how it's helping people. And that's the thing, I guess about art you know art a lot of times comes from pain but art itself brings about healing a lot of times and i think that's kind of what this project is mm -hmm. yeah i mean look for for everything all, all, after all it's said and done it's graphic it's, it's a, a tragic story but we did want to imply hope and you can work through stuff you know what i mean you can get through things yeah uh, in the end so it, it is a pretty um, hopeful movie in, in that sense or at least I wanted it to be and Dave wanted it to be in the end so and Frank I appreciate it it's funny too because when you were like hey, we'll go an hour or we go two hours I was like I'm not fucking talking like, no I think we can fill the time and I'm like alright so yeah I'm uh, setting my alarm um, but I'm uh, super appreciative of that too so I, I uh, love you guys and you know that oh, well, thank you. Thank you so you <laughs> Well, you know, you know, we, we love you. We love Dave. And, and, and like I said, I wish you guys all the best with this project and all your future projects that they continue to be a success. Thank you so much, Frank and Gulliver. <laughs> Thank you. I I <laughs> you had to sneak one in. I was it's waiting fine. for it. I mean, that, I think my name's Gulliver in the meantime. That's what, that's why I 
I call her nowadays. <laughs> That's what he says during sex, you know. <laughs> Thanks so much, Todd. Have a great night, and and we'll keep up with with all things spread productions has uh, coming up down the pipeline. Great, thank you, buddy. Take it easy. Have a great night. Bye bye. Bye. That was Todd Newman, the director of this. It's a really amazing documentary, Morning Sun, the, the, the story of Dave Navarro's mom, Constance Navarro, and, and the uh, unfortunate event that happened. Like I said, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. If you miss any part of this interview, do not worry. You will find it on our YouTube channel, our uh, podcast uh, feeds, all that. You can find that at WTRradio.com. And uh, yeah, we shall bid everyone farewell for the evening. That being said, as always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WTR Radio. And check out the website, of course, WTRRadio.com. Wow. That being said, we're going to go out with... Uh, yeah, with some... Uh, why don't we go out with some uh, some music from Dave Navarro, you know, from his solo album. Sounds one of my favorite tracks of that album. But first, believe it or not, Dave did a cool little bumper for me. Uh, I believe it was around Christmas time, 2013 or so, and it has become quite popular. People have requested it when I go to break. They're like, can you please play that bumper? So I'm going to end the show with that bumper and a track by Dave Navarro off of his uh, solo album, Trust No One. This is Not For Nothing. Thank you, guys. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back in a few weeks. Next four weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Until then, guys, take care. Bye-bye. See y'all. West of the Rockies With Frank West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer On the Independent FM, Los Angeles